Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. And today is one of those timeless shows when we get a former tennis player uh, who's going to share some memories, some anecdotes. And uh, it's going to be a listening lesson for me and I'm sure the audience will be thrilled. Uh, let me welcome former world number four, uh, Gene Mayer uh, from United States. Hey Gene, welcome to the show. Well, nice to be with you. So yeah, I mean, we've tried to get this uh, in the books. I think we've been in touch since December. Then, uh, my bad, we fell out of touch and you were busy and then COVID happened and then uh, the conversation resumed and here we are. Uh, you're finding time to talk uh, with us. And uh, like I was saying in the prepping part of the show, I consider myself a tennis geek, but now I was pre- preparing for, to speak with you. Uh, you have quite the resume. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people know about you, but hopefully the younger fans know about your exploits and uh, your tennis journey. So standard question, how did tennis start for you? Uh, I know you have a brother also who played pro. Uh, Fill us in. What's your first memory and when did you decide to become a professional tennis player? Right. Well, it it wasn't very difficult for me. It was almost in my blood. Um, My dad was a uh, tennis player from Hungary and Actually, Yugoslavia both because his town became one and the other seemed year by year. So he taught. uh, My brother is four years older than I am. uh, So he started us both when we were each two years old. So it seems like my earliest memories of life uh, also have tennis in it because we started so early. So uh, there was no professional tennis at that time, which dates me as a dinosaur. Um, but it was in, when I was 12 was the first professional tennis, 1968. And, uh, then it just followed from that playing, uh, playing junior tennis, collegiate tennis, and then the opportunity to play professional tennis. And even it's, it's funny uh, for me, it was not, it was, I was, you know, planning on going to law school if tennis didn't work out. I had, uh, I got to Stanford. I was, uh, uh, sort of dual path at the time and hedging my bets a little bit. But uh, within a year or so of playing on the tour, it became evident that I potentially had a career and that needed to be the emphasis. Mm, sure. This is this is a good segue, mentioning Stanford and then you're originally from New York. So I've been calling States uh, home for 25 years, but follow tennis all, uh, all my life. And America, at least when I was living in India, United States had a very rich tradition in tennis. But now I've come here, I find there are certain pockets where tennis is popular. Like if you go to the U.S. Open, you think that's the most popular sport, but it's far from the truth when you compare it to the other four or five major sports. So back in your day, uh, was tennis still uh, popular in certain pockets, or you think the culture has taken a nosedive? How do you see tennis? You still work in tennis. How has the popularity of tennis uh, gone through cycles in your association with it? Uh, well, tennis really in many ways, and this is not at all reflective of my part in it necessarily, but tennis exploded at the time when I was playing. Tennis was new and exciting. Uh, it didn't just feature um, a huge number of American superstars. Let's say when I was number four in the world, I was the third American, just to give you an idea of the depth and the domination of the game. And it was not just the top players in the world, but it was also the Connors, McEnroe, even Nastasi exploits. So there were all types of personalities. 
tennis was on TV constantly. There weren't as many competitive uh, sports. So people were playing as a percentage of the population. Racket sales, tennis ball purchases was enormous at the time. So it was really, in many ways, the golden age of tennis from from the view of popularity in the in the United States, a number of, of things came together at just the right time. Was it affordable? I know like tennis has always been called like it's a cliche country club sport. Uh, but is there any fabrication to this truth? I mean, uh, I mean, two hundred twenty dollars for a racket today, which is an average racket, and it goes all the way to three fifty. Uh, you think uh, was it always affordable, or there's a myth attached to it when you say there are a lot of people playing? Well, at, at the time, a lot of people were, were playing, but, um, you know, it depends. There are two sides to tennis. If you if you really want to play tennis seriously and get coaching and travel and all of that, it's crazy expensive. Uh, there is certainly a country club scene uh, that is uh, has tennis as one of its prominent parts. But there's also the public park world and there are used rackets and programs that exist. So uh, if you're buying uh, the latest tennis clothes and the latest tennis rackets at retail and playing indoor tennis in New York, uh, you may need to be printing money, uh, which you do now and and you did at the time. But for me, let's say I started to get free rackets early. My dad was a tennis pro. Uh, so we didn't have very much, but I had opportunity to play tennis. Uh, it's always had a little bit of a dual personality. Sure. So let's talk about your junior days. Uh, you are like uh, what, three or four years older than McEnroe, so it's pretty much uh, the same era. Uh, you played with him a lot, and there were other players as well. Uh, Connors was, of course, the senior, and then you had Mayart, Gilbert, who were like a few years younger. Uh, so talk about uh, growing up uh, and some of the names that I didn't even take. So how was the junior uh, competition coming into pros uh, with that uh, golden American era that ushered? Well, well, it was for American players at the time, which we didn't necessarily realize so much. Uh, when If you were an outstanding American player, you were an outstanding player in the world. Um, which is very different than today. It's a it's a much smaller tennis world here. And then when you're exposed to the world, all of a sudden the competition gets stiffer. So Americans were dominating, let's say, Easter balls and orange balls and all of that at the time. Uh, there certainly were other good players, but for the for the most part at the time, there weren't as many tournaments. There wasn't as much international travel. I got to be good very early because of, of having a dad coach built in. So I was already, you know, winning orange balls at 10, 10 years old and dominating in those age groups. Uh, I always joke with people that I think my best tennis relative to the world was probably when I was eight, nine and 10 because I was so much better coached than anyone else was. And uh, then all of a sudden, people started to get better and catch up a bit. Now, were your foundation years when you developed your game? Was it uh, truly hard courts or the the green clay? What were the surfaces you were exposed to when you were honing your skills? Well, it was really both. Um, we we grew up in Woodmere, New York, which is a small town near Kennedy Airport on um, on Long Island in New York, and. 
my dad was a tennis pro at the Woodmere Country Club. So as a result of his being at the country club, uh, we had access to their green Hartrue courts. So we played a lot of, on clay when it was outdoor weather. Indoors was mostly hard courts, even though there were some indoor clay courts in New York, which is a little bit unusual. And also we had the benefit, my dad, we had a, a house that was by no means a palatial house, but behind it was a small piece of land that couldn't be built on. So we had the opportunity to purchase that for almost no money. And then a fellow who had actually done the installation of the US Open Courts on a barter deal installed a court in our backyard for my dad. So we had a, a court in our backyard to play before and after school. So all of those things made the harsh New York weather a little less harsh. So, yeah, it's a segue to, you know, from your honing your skills on, you know, like you mentioned, different surfaces. Uh, did you see a clear shift in your association with tennis when Americans started struggling on clay? Uh, is it a byproduct of something that happened over decades? Because if you, I looked at your resume too, you won a tournament in Munich, you, uh, you were decent on clay, you won a few titles on clay. So distribution of wealth in your resume uh, was uh, quite, uh, I think you didn't win on grass, but you won indoor hard, outdoor hard, and outdoor clay. Uh, well, so in I, your... My results were pretty even throughout. I was in the quarters of Wimbledon two or three times. I was, you know, indoors. Uh, it was more dependent on who I was playing against. Uh, I think part of it was I spent a huge amount of time on hard true, uh, learning to play, learning to move. Uh, there's a great deal that can be learned. And I saw a very interesting statistic, and I didn't know it was this high a percentage a little while ago, that said that of the top 50 men in the world at the time, 46 of them grew up on clay. And that hasn't been the case with many um, American players, and particularly the Californian American players, but even the Floridians um, have tended to play a lot on hard courts, which breeds a sameness of playing, and it's much easier to move and requires much less versatility of game. Um, so I think that has been a huge ill-impacting phenomenon, which, as you mentioned before, happened over decades as every junior tournament around here uh, that happens in New York is on hard court. It's mostly indoors on hard court. Uh, so, you know, the rare exception is on another surface. And I think that is really to the detriment of, um, of the players developing, of the future of the game, even injury-wise, the propensity for injury is so much greater, particularly when you're developing on a hard court. Mm, so that's quite interesting. And uh, I want to weigh in because this is the week, uh, if life, <clears throat> excuse me, if life was normal, we would be watching or, you know, on TV, Roland Garros. And uh, not too long ago, I mean, it's still more than 25 years ago, Michael Chang, Jim Courier, then Andre Agassi won in Paris. And uh, granted, I mean, uh, they also, most of them, honed their skills in, you know, either California or Florida. So what was different then that those guys were able to conquer the red clay of Paris after a huge drought, going back to Tony Trabert in 55, then Chang winning in 89. But now it seems like it's not even a prayer if he can get 
an American male, you know, contending. Of course, we don't want to say never. Anything can happen. Draws can open up. But uh, the way the game what? is played now, it's, it's, it's a very tough ask to see an American male making the business weekend in Paris. Right. Well, I think, I think it really is a combination of things. It's not merely on clay. You know, Americans have not been legitimate contenders at the top of the game for as long as we can remember in, you know, in the current generation of players. They're not even in the conversation. Now, you know, one, one could win a tournament in a week and get hot or have a good result. But we are barely legitimate top 20. We're, we're largely a third world country on the male side right now. So uh, and now you take that we're weaker on clay uh, and and now it gets worse and worse. But even during the time when players were were a bit more, at least potentially in the top 10, that showed off more the glaring weakness um, at the French and the difficulty of contending when big, you know, big serve and one ball doesn't end the point. No, I was definitely trying to tie the formative years of uh, maybe the question. Uh, I, I didn't come across what I wanted to say, so apologies. But uh, what I was trying to say is Courier and Agassi were playing power tennis. You know, that was the ushering of the new era, the big forehand, the voluntary protégés. And then uh, they both, you know, between them, uh, played five French Open finals, I think. Uh, Courier won both three, actually six French Open finals, and there's a pretty healthy ratio. They had three titles. So then, of course, Sampras was, uh, Clay was his Achilles heel, and Roddick tried, you know. There was no lack of trying. But overall, uh, do you see anything fundamentally? I mean, they were great players, you're right. They were also winning on hard, so it's not like they were not winning elsewhere. But uh, strictly if taking Clay as the puzzle piece, uh, what worked then and what didn't work now? Do you think it's a question of not having the talent or it's a fundamental education? I know it's kind of a broad question. Right, uh, well, I don't think it's necessarily a difficult question in the, in that regard. Um, I don't think um, that it is too sort of talent driven because you can have maybe a courier who I wouldn't consider the most gifted tennis player, but a huge uh, proponent of hard work, dedication and fitness, a learned tennis player who became a superstar. And then you have Andre Agassi who had you know, as much talent, arguably, as almost anyone who's played the game and didn't for quite a bit of his career necessarily use it that well. But they both adapted and learned to to play on clay. And I think there are differing kinds of stories. Courier played a lot on clay growing up. Uh, He was a grinder by nature and, and very patient. He was even though he was strong. I wouldn't consider it necessarily uh, power tennis compared to the, you know, the future generation of power tennis, bigger serves, more first ball tennis. Agassi um, was a hot and cold player, better on hardcore early on. And he learned to back off and learn patience and crafting points and actually jokingly grew to love sort of torturing his opponents rather than crushing his opponents. Uh, So those are somewhat differing stories. And I think Chang also was a monument effort uh, to uh, fitness, 
and and the growing sort of development of of Americans who played very well from the backcourt and were able to make the the kind of adaptation. Interestingly, it's hard to put Michael as much as I like him in that group, even though he sort of snuck through and, and won that French because I'm not sure that his 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 record would necessarily stand up or his ability to to be as forceful a hitter when he needed to on on clay. There was certainly the consistency and the and the fitness side. Um, but I think those are varying stories. But for many people, it requires huge commitment and huge change from the way that they've learned and trained to adapt to clay. And I'm not sure that that kind of commitment and that kind of specific training is, is currently being done by aspiring young Americans. So there's a, just a, another observation what you said. So it's not a question of talent. It's more about uh, the training programs because Tim Mayot has been on the podcast a few times and we've discussed, uh, which according to him is a very obvious glitch on the backhand side, which uh, combines with the movement. And that's been uh, the case since the erotic years that uh, most American men have struggled on that wing and uh, in this uh, new, you know, homogenized style of tennis where surfaces are neutralized, uh, you, you cannot have a weakness uh, that glaring on one side of uh, the stroke. And that's what led to the imbalance, America being such an economic tennis power, but in terms of results on the men's side, like you said, it's a third world country. So yes. is it a talent question or is it a technical, uh, what Tim said, or is it a combination of few things? Or? Right. I don't think, you know, when, when you look at it, um, I think that talent in some ways doesn't necessarily have that much to do with how well players develop. There are certain underlying things that a player must have. If, you know, if, if you're a male tennis player and you're not athletic and you don't have the ability to move well, you may want to play a stationary sport. Uh, it's not hard, you know, it's not hard to uh, figure out that it's going to be tough, certainly, to play singles well. Um, but I think that for, for most people, the, the process now of learning to play and developing, um, particularly on clay, you need to have more arrows in your quiver. It's very hard to live off just a serve and just a forehand and liking to hit two shot play two shot points and to hit the ball flat and hard. Uh, you need to have more versatility. When you watch the good players now, they all move very well on clay. It is amazing to me how in vogue and how essential it is as, as people have become fitter and fitter to be able to hit good drop shots these days. Because as the person goes back to defend, all of a sudden the up and back of hitting hard and hitting drop shots becomes that much more attractive. So to me, it's a question of having a well-rounded game. Weapons are important. But it is, is hugely important to be able to do a variety of things because clay doesn't necessarily equal clay. Uh, you know, if it's 80 degrees in, in Paris and warm, it's very different than if it's uh, 48 degrees and windy and rainy and the balls play completely differently. And you need to be able to adapt 
and win in those different conditions. So you can't have all your eggs in one basket and expect to have an outstanding long-term clay record. Sure. Uh, so let's put a closure to this topic by just putting in one last uh, question from my side. Uh, America has such, you know, you know, has such a great history of uh, men and women tennis players. So you think if uh, our players are not winning majors on the men's side, you think is there a thing called lack of role models or tennis is so international with Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, the young, stu- the, you know, the, the young uh, kids don't really, it doesn't matter that it, it's the American who's winning on the last Sunday. Has, uh, has that something to do with what's not coming through the ranks? Well, I, I think that definitely impacts uh, the people coming into the game. I think at the time when you're having a huge number of really well-known players from your country that are now dominating the tennis scene and you think about what you want to be and you're a 10-year-old athlete, you'll be drawn to the names. When Michael Jordan was winning with the Bulls, it drew people into basketball. And when Jimmy Connors was winning in tennis, it drew people into, into tennis. So I think that's, that's part of it. But now the question is, how do you train? What do you do? And particularly to me, there are a couple of things just culturally now that I've noticed in my, my coaching and training now. One is, I find that when I've worked with players outside America, and this is not certainly a a perfect rule, their willingness to work and fight through adversity is far greater and they are far less spoiled. Tennis is hard work. It is not a great sport if you don't become really good at it. So just participating is not enough even economically. So that is a big issue. And the second thing that I've noticed is one is the work ethic, but also is the concentration span of young people coming out of America now. I find that if my coaching, what I could explain before in 10 minutes in depth to a student 25 years ago, if I don't say it in four seconds now, I lose them. And particularly if you're looking to play clay court tennis, which is a more patient game, all of those have impact. So I think, unfortunately, there are a number of things that are somewhat stacking the deck against American players. And I think a variety of them have to be addressed. It isn't just the crop of players, but I believe it's far deeper than that. Well, that's quite an astute observation. It sounds very simple. But then, Gene, that has to apply across all sports because the youth today, uh, the attention span has decreased. With uh, yes. I think that's that's been talked, uh, you know, to death, like on, in almost all fields. Yes. So let me take this opportunity and uh, let's take a step back and let's revisit your career. And mm-hmm. uh, 1980 was your best year. Uh, won close to 70 matches, qualified for the year-end championships and beat Bjorn Borg and John McIndoe in the same week at the Masters. What do you remember of that week? Well, it was, uh, it was an exciting week. Um, you know, being a New Yorker and playing in New York, so I, I, I had the pleasure of sort of double dipping, which was combination U.S. Open and, and Masters at the time, and to play... Um, whether it was early on at Forest Hills or later 
at Flushing Meadows and then to play in Madison Square Garden um, was certainly exciting and, and really a childhood dream for me. Um, that was arguably some of the best tennis that I've ever played during that uh, during that Masters event. And it was uh, it was interesting because I was managed by the time by a fellow named David Falk, who was uh, worked with a, a company called ProServe. And he after um, uh, after I retired, he, he left individual athlete management and he picked a young basketball player named Michael Jordan as his, as his basketball, <laughs> which which launched him into team sports. Uh, but one of the things David said to me was the night before I played McEnroe in the first match, he said, go and spend some time because the Masters had started. I had the first night off. And so he said, go and watch it. I said, you know, I practiced all day. I don't really want to go. And I've been in that. I've even hit Madison Square Garden before. He said, watch when the match is on. So go into Madison Square Garden. It is unbelievably loud. It is raucous. Um, a lot of people have had too much beer to drink. Uh, there's smoke up by the scoreboard that's hovering, and the the feeling of the place was intense. And I watched for about an hour. And after I, I beat McEnroe the next day, I said, I think I think you won the third set for me because I think if I had just walked in here and just went to play the first time, not having seen it live and not having been prepared for uh, not not just the court, but the atmosphere itself. I don't think I, I would have won that match. And then I was able to follow up by beating Borg and Clerk, uh, sort of all all in a row. So it was it was certainly a very exciting uh, a say exciting time in um, in tennis. But but for me, being a New Yorker, it had a particular you know sort of an emotional uh, tie. Yeah, you you and Mac both uh, hail from uh, originally from Queens. So how was that yes. week? I mean, uh, when even the U U.S. Open, uh, were you getting a lot of tickets for friends? And uh, well, <laughs> I mean, was that a popular demand? Oh, <laughs> uh, it, it was. I mean, it was. After a while, I said, I, I said to my wife, "You're answering the phone. <laughs> if you like them, give them tickets. If you don't or don't know who they are, tell them." But uh, it really, um, it really got to be. At a certain point, and you certainly can't complain. I, you know, I certainly don't like athletes that complain about what stardom brings because it brings so many opportunities. But it, it really is at a certain point you have to draw the line because if you're trying to compete and you're trying to be ready for matches, uh, you need to, at, at a certain point, say these other things you know are need to be put in other people's hands. And, I, and a funny. Funny story was Tim Wilkerson, who was a, an American player, a few years later came and stayed at my house on Long Island. I'm retired and he goes um, and out to play at the U.S. Open. He's not seated and he starts going through the draw and all of a sudden he gets to the quarters and everyone in the world is calling Tim for tickets and for interviews. And he's on the phone till like 12 o'clock, one o'clock at night. So I joked with him. I said, you know, they probably don't know where they're calling, or at least I hope they don't know that it's my number. <laughs> but I'll answer the phone. Can I be your agent? Because, you know, at, at 10 o'clock, it's done, Tim. <laughs> but, you know, but that that's pretty normal there. Uh, there were friends that, you know, some friends that developed during that those two weeks that 
I didn't really have the rest of the year. <laughs> sure. To say the least. No, that's, I mean, uh, one can only imagine how these things work. So let's uh, stay with the group of, uh, with McEnroe and Connors. Oh, sorry, McEnroe and Borg. So how is it different playing those two guys? They were both at the very close of peak of their powers. They had played a Wimbledon final not too long ago that still gets talked about. So what was, uh, with, and especially with your game, two hands on both sides, we'll get to that. But how was it different playing both these guys? What challenges, but, you know, they bring? We know how good they were, but when you were on the other side of the net, differentiate between the two, if you can. Right. It, it's hard to even compare because when I think of, of, of John and Bjorn, I, there is nothing remotely similar. Play, if playing against one of them is tennis, playing against the other one can't be tennis because <laughs> just personality-wise, point structure-wise, stroke-wise, all of those things is completely um, a different world between the two of them. So to me, um, I spent a lot of time talking with my dad before, who remained my coach the entire time, about what exactly uh, was was the way to best compete against them. And just to give you a little bit of a comparison, and you certainly know their games, but the whole battle between John and I, and we had a number of very good matches, and we, you know, we played Davis Cup together even, and you know, knew each other's game very well. The whole battle was my returning against his serving because my returning was my strongest suit and arguably at the top of the men's game. And his serving was about as good as, it, as there was on the tour. So if I was returning well and picking a serve well and getting him in trouble, it was going to be a long day for John. If he was holding serve easily and he could make more inroads into my service game, then it was going to be a long day for me. So, so that was one side, and it was all about someone who was trying to get into the net and shorten every point and trying to rush me and take away the play and not let me dictate points. And Bjorn was exactly the opposite. Bjorn would sort of make lots of balls and say, here, you decide what we're going to do. You want to hit? You want to come in? He was, he was as good a counterpuncher, reactive a great um, hitter of passing shots. So, so Bjorn was much more about, can I stay consistent enough early in the point and not give him the mistakes he wants, but at a certain point, I have to really hurt him because if this turns into a 14-hour match, I'll probably wind up in the hospital faster than he is. So, so it was a blend of, if I hit too early, I give him too many mistakes. If I don't hit at all, he's going to wear me down, and I'm going to become another one of the casualties that is... Uh, <laughs> was, it, was it a different pulse to the match? Because that's what... I, I haven't seen these guys. I've seen the tail end of Mac when I started following tennis. What a genius and a shot maker he was. But due to the, sometimes the monologue that was going on with him and the umpire and the distraction, was it, was it a different match? Uh, uh, and how, how would you focus if he's uh, having a meltdown? Well, it's a totally different world. I played him a couple of times at night at the U.S. Open in, in late rounds. Um, you, you had to be prepared for disruptions and how you were going to handle the disruption. One of them 
he stopped the match for almost 10 minutes and didn't get defaulted. And I was practicing serves going back and forth after sitting down for three minutes and then loosening up and stretching. You and think Bjorn, Dennis misses that? I mean, sorry to cut your thought, but continue. You think that kind of theater does, was it needed or that was just unique for those times? It wouldn't survive today. Well, it's like watching the train wreck. I, I think that, I think that, People are drawn to personalities. Tennis is not merely the game, but it's knowing the people and having the fiery personalities. There was, there was a very interesting mix of players and personalities at the time when I played. If you took someone like Borg and, and McEnroe and Vilas and Garolitis and Gottfried and the varieties of different names that were out there and so so I, I think that that definitely I'm not a big fan necessarily of of the kind of interruptions that I had playing against Connors and McEnroe. But there's no doubt about it that people were drawn to the uncertainty and the potential for fireworks that they brought. There's no doubt about it. And, and please finish your thought uh, when I interrupted about playing McEnroe uh, under the lights. I know you went five with him at the U.S. Open. Yes. Uh, please finish yes. your thoughts on that. And so, so basically, you had to be prepared for those breaks. It's almost like, you know, if the guy has a good forehand, you need to know how to neutralize it. If you believe that the match is going to be stopped and you're not used to playing in stop matches and you need to figure out a way to come back after the break, which is probably going to come if it's a t- tight match and be able to play as well when he's used to it all the time. So that was sort of sort of an art. And on the other hand, Bjorn never said a peep. I mean, if there was an explosion on the next court <laughs> and there were fumes and fires coming, Bjorn wouldn't have even, even noticed. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a little anecdote. One year I'm playing Bjorn in Denver and uh, we're about to go on the court and there is a power outage and they have to evacuate the arena and we're waiting till power comes back and we can restart the match. So we're sitting in the locker room. They said, you want to go back to the hotel room? So I said, you know, it's about half an hour away. Who knows how long it's going to take? Bjorn said, no, we'll, we'll just stay. And so, you know, it wasn't in an age, even though we had coaches and things of, you know, separate entourages. So we're just sitting there talking and we're sitting by emergency light talking in the locker room. So I, I, after a while, we're talking. I said, Bjorn, you know, I understand sort of, you know, quiet and reserved on the court, but you are incredible. You know, I mean, the things that you can go through and not, he said, well, let me tell you a story. I was 14 years old and I played in national championships in Sweden and I lost a match and I broke two of my rackets and I came home and my dad said, you're, I'm locking your rackets away in this cupboard and you're not going to see them for about a month. And, um, and I want you to know if it happens again, you're not playing again. And I went, hmm, okay. And then I said, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> I'm 13 years old. I, the first time I ever lost to someone my age and in the Easter Bowl, and I must have thrown my racket 50 times in the curtain. 
I didn't break it ever, but it, you know, if, if it hit a solid object, it would have definitely broken. My dad wasn't there. I, I remember going home. My mom had told him what, you know, what happened at the match. And he, I walked in and he could have a bit of a temper at times. He was very calm and he said, uh, how'd it go? And I said, just very quietly, not well. And he said, I just wanted to tell you something. He said, you know, I, I heard what happened. And if it ever happens again, you're never playing tennis. And I was about to mouth, you can't do that. <laughs> and then I realized he could do that. <laughs> and I said, interestingly, how our, our parents very quickly cured that kind of behavior. And it was almost at the same age, almost the same circuit. And we laughed hysterically. We spent about two hours talking. We got to know each other, you know, even better during that time. And then, you know, lights went on finally. So we had to play. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you're, you're reducing me to a fan and I have no shame in becoming one. I was trying to be objective, but how was the locker room environment with these personalities? Yeah, I've read about, I read a book about Becker by Gunther Bosch, and this is like four or five years prior to that. So talk about the locker room with these guys. You were, what, number four in the world, uh, McIndroe Connors, Borg, Lendl was there, he was joining the mix. So talk about the, the environment, how intense was it, or, or share some, share some stories. Right. Well, it was, you know, it depends who it was. I mean, the, everyone had their different sort of locker room personality. Some people were off on their own uh, with their team. They were quiet. Uh, a number of people, you know, a guy like Jimmy Connors was very boisterous in the locker room. He was joking around and commenting about the TV that was on or so it really depended. It wasn't, I would say, for the most part, that intense until often late in the majors when everyone else had cleared out and all of a sudden you look around and you go empty over there empty over there <laughs> and and all of a sudden there was a lot more intensity when you think about late in majors and all you know every everyone else had left but for the most part there was a reasonably good amount of camaraderie uh, you know, a few minutes before you'd be talking to a coach about game plan and then you'd get down to business. But it, it depended sort of personality to personality. And, you know, McEnroe, as as <laughs> as vocal as he was on the court, was actually quite a quiet guy socially and otherwise. So he wasn't terribly talkative or certainly not outgoing at all. So it really depended on the kind of guy. Boris came on towards the um, towards the end of um, uh, of my career. Um, and an interesting story about Boris. Um, my brother had played Boris about six months before I first played him, and he said, "There's this young guy, and he's like 15, and you know he's he's really good." So I'm playing in a tournament in Luxembourg, and. So I'm going through the draw and I see him play two or three games of one match as I'm about to come into the arena. And, you know, he didn't look that good to me. So I thought, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not that impressed. So, so, so my brother, I, now finally I play through, I get to the semifinals and I have to play bars. And so now I'm talking to my brother a lot more because I haven't seen him play. He's a new guy on the tour and my brother spoke highly of him. So he said, boy, you know what, you know, he serves really well, you know, athletic, comes forward a lot. So I said, you know, I, I still don't think he's that good, but, I'm, you know, I, I respect your opinion. So we go on the court. 
I win the first set 7-5. I somehow lose in a brutal second set 7-6. And, and the third set, I win 7-6. It's like three hours and 15 minutes. And finally... Uh, Was it clear that, or indoors? This is indoors. So finally now, uh, after the match, they dim the lights and bring out... It's my birthday. And they bring out a birthday cake. So they bring it out on the court. So a lot of the players come out and, you know, people are standing there. They knew about it. I didn't, I didn't know about it. My brother came out. And so, so what happens is, you know, so they finally, you know, they had candles and I'm supposed to blow out the candles. So I go, I take the first breath and I go to blow out and I'm like so winded. I'm not, I don't feel like I have enough breath to blow out the candles. So I take a second breath and I was like, take the second breath to blow them out. My my brother my brother you know whispers in my ear not that good huh <laughs> so that was that was my uh, introduction to uh, to Boris and obviously uh, my brother was righter than I was sure no that's that's quite the story so let's take a, let's go back to the Borg and McEnroe you played both of them a few times more than a few times in 1980 you played Borg at Wimbledon and Mac at uh, at Flushing. Uh, which was yes. a bigger personal thrill. You, you're kind of going in their den. Uh, Borg was already a five-time champion when you played him, and Mac had already won a couple of U.S. Opens. Which was a bigger thrill or bigger challenge, if you recall that? Uh, I would say that, that you know, it depended to me what surface I was playing them on. Both of those were, you know, you were really getting each of them probably on the best surface. You know, if you play McEnroe, you know, McEnroe on hard, Bjorn on on grass, you were right at the top, the peak of their game. I mean, both superstars of the game, very different personalities. I was more drawn to respecting Bjorn more just because of his personality and the way he conducted himself both on and off the court. Um Bjorn was as fit as any player could be and as hardworking and as diligent. And Mac was probably more like me in talent level and uh, and his ability. There was much more wizardry for McEnroe. So I think there were both things to appreciate. They both got your adrenaline going. I think probably Mac got my adrenaline more going because I knew there was going to be fireworks because I tended to return his serve well and give him problems from time to time. So I was a little bit more ready for warfare. So maybe that inspired me a little bit more. But I would say on a respect side, I probably respected Bjorn more. Now, with your game style with two hands on both sides, we've seen even players like Fabrice Santoro, Jim Pugh, is it natural to have uh, more of a feel to the game? Uh, is that a two-handed trait? I, mean, I don't have a big sample size, but yes. uh, how do you feel about that style of play? Many do have have feel because one of one of the things that double two-handers have been able to develop is disguise and also angles. Um, very often, even if you look at Selish on the on the ladies' side. Um, there is an ability to control the ball, and often uh, two-handers are not necessarily all-out power players, meaning short points. They are more uh, adept at, at moving the ball around, spot-hitting, and often very strong strategically. 
So I think all of that fits together for more of a feel-based sort of, let's call it artistic game, rather than sort of the bludgeoning power of the single knockout blow. And that can be taught, right? Because I play tennis at the club level. I mean, I'm, uh, I think it's all about the hands, right? Uh, the feel. That's, uh, that's well, more like it, natural. It is developmental. I, I know that, let's say, for my dad, he saw early on, certainly in me, very differently than my brother, a knack for feel for the ball and a desire to play varieties of different style. And he let that grow and nurtured it more in me. He did see it, but we also worked on a lot of that. My brother was much more one-dimensional, very good, but much more predictable in what he did, straight-ahead power tennis. And so he didn't love that stuff. It didn't appeal to him mentally, and he didn't um, he, he wasn't as drawn to it. So I think it's really a combination of it. I started to work um, as a coach with Fabrice Santoro when he was coming up out of the juniors, just transitioning out of the juniors. And we spent a couple of years together. And Fabrice in the beginning, when he started, was fairly one dimensional. He was more of a grinder from the backcourt. He didn't necessarily do much of that. And it was in, in our discussion and his really being willing to try these things and being seeing the effectiveness of it. He spent much of his junior career playing pretty straight ahead tennis. So there is a developmental side, but it has to be something that you're capable of physically. And it also has to stimulate and fit with, with your sort of game plan and also just your mental approach to the game. Okay. That's, uh, <clears throat> I, I can see that trajectory uh, because for me, from fire, it always felt like it was more uh, natural talent. And then you work on it, of course, over the, over the years you get better. But yeah, that's, uh, that's quite, quite the observation. And thanks for sharing that. So let me ask you about Lendl. Uh, he's uh, seen as the guy in your era uh, who was uh, not painted in the best of lights by the media, especially in the United States. He was, of course, started beating Mac and Connors, and then Borg was somewhat popular. Uh, so revisit Lendl. How, what was he like? And then secondly, when you look back, do you think he was treated fairly by the media? Uh, and, uh, and last but not the least, uh, he, did you sense he's reinventing the professionalism in tennis, the way he trained, the fitness, the power? You know, he was inviting juniors to his... Uh, to his mansion to practice. Uh, share some stories about Lendl and answer these questions, if you can do all right. in one. <laughs> well, Ivan e- e- was another extraordinary uh, player, uh, you know, a very complex um, uh, person in, in so many different ways. I think first, if you talk about, let's, let's talk about the tennis side first. He was as hardworking and as serious-minded about uh, getting better um, as any player to this day, even uh, that was that was extraordinary, and uh, he he was willing to do what it took and to even forge new ground at the time in order to do it. So uh, there's no doubt about it that was extraordinary. He had a huge serve and a huge forehand, uh, and was um, was the coming of the power game. So that, that is, is very true also. Um, an interesting story about, about Yvonne is in talking to him, 
you know, I, you know, we we knew each other quite well even early on because Wojtek Fibach, who was a Polish player of the time, was a mentor to um, to Yvonne and a good friend of mine. And so naturally we were drawn together and and Yvonne was was breaking in on uh, on the tour at the time. And so years after playing together and even after I retired, I said, you know, you work so hard. You were, you know, you're training at, you know, I understand that kind of drive to get better. I had that kind of drive also, but you took it to another level. He said the, the missing piece was, he said that my mother was standing on a line in Czechoslovakia for two days to buy one roll of toilet paper. And my drive to be a great tennis player was to get her off that line. And I went, whoa, because, you know, my parents came from Europe with very little and we never had very much. But it was, you know, that, that's another world compared to anything that I experienced. So Yvonne was coming from experiences that were vastly different than many of us experienced. And I think that Yvonne... Yvonne had a very difficult time coping with and relating to um, the limelight and the kind of attention that you get. And admittedly, I don't think he necessarily handled it that well, but you're not necessarily prepared for it. I think there was a lot of discomfort and insecurity in Yvonne at the time in breaking in. And he could have either handled it in a shy, withdrawn way. He tended to come on more strongly to make sure no one really got to him. So no one could sort of penetrate the shell. And so, you know, his comment to journalists about being allergic to grass and then they all print it and then telling them after a while, you know, he was just joking about being allergic to grass. You know, that was sort of his form of humor. I, I think that it, it just emphasized to me that someone coming from the background that he came, who was not a native English speaker, who was now thrust into the limelight, there's a lot of transition and learning that has to go on in a very short period of time. And Yvonne was not necessarily the most adept at making that transition quickly. Hmm. All right, so we're closing in on time, uh, but I know you have a commitment, so... Uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, let's talk about your brother. How difficult is this? I mean, I know it's a cliche. McEnroe played, uh, John played Patrick, Serena, Venus. But it never gets easy. How it is to play a sibling in a match that's competitive and the world is watching. How I mean, re- share share your moment with your brother here. What you had on a tennis coach. Well, well, interestingly, we played each other three times on the tour. Um, we must have played thousands of sets growing up. I can't remember if I won one of those growing up sets. Uh, he was, you know, when I was 12, he was 16. He was one of the best at this, you know, 16 and under. I was one of the best, you know, and 12 and under. So, uh, it was, uh, when we played on the tour, I despised every minute. I, it was painful, difficult. I wanted to get out of there. He really enjoyed it. He said, you know, after all these years, we've worked this hard. He really enjoyed that. 
And interesting, we played each other three times, and he never won a set in the pros. <laughs> and I dreaded it. And just a, just a very quick brotherly anecdote. Um, we played one year in the finals of Stockholm. So I had finished my match um, in, um, uh, in Stockholm uh, earlier in the day, and he was playing Connors that evening. And he had, he had not beaten Connors, who was his nemesis in his junior age group uh, for ages. And so what happened was he, he went out and played and he got, he got back. And I had no idea, um, you know, how he did. So I asked him and he said, oh, yeah, I won. And I thought, you know, maybe he's joking. So I asked my mom, who was there at the time, and she said, no, he won. So we played the next day. I had pulled a muscle the day before and had to withdraw even from the next tournament. But the doctor said, if you want to play this one final, strap up, but you got to be careful. So we're strapped up. Uh, you know, so I'm strapped up. I play uh, uh, in the morning with my brother for about 15, 20 minutes, a very short warm up because it's stiff and not great. So I'm getting treatment all the time. We go out on the court and I said, I can't really move side to side the way that I uh, that I would I'd li like to, and I like to play longer points because he's aggressive. I'd like to lengthen the points, but I will. You know, I'm going to have to play aggressively and end the points because I don't think physically I can stand up the way that I normally would. And I played extraordinarily, and the match was um, uh, the match was over pretty quickly. And so we we went up and, and shook hands. So we we shook hands. You know, it was warm and. And nice and and he said uh so i said i said i said sorry I, you know i should have saved that for someone else and you said uh he said that hamstring's not feeling very good, <laughs> oh, <that's> good. <laughs> i said i promise i said he said i know the doctor said so but he said i, I never got to test <laughs> oh so we are yeah i mean i wish we can go on forever but yeah thanks for all these anecdotes and i enjoyed this and hopefully we can do this again sometime uh jane it was a pleasure 